You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Condolences to the city of Paris and the people of France, and alas, expect fraud to follow fire. A compromise may have turned a company's networks against its customers. Denial of service in Ecuador, a look at Brazil's cyber criminals, selling a keylogger complete with terms of service, Facebook's attitude toward data, the EU finalizes its controversial copyright law, Huawei's prospects, and what did the algorithm know, and when did the algorithm know it? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, April 16th, 2019. Yesterday's fire at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris was tragic, and we offer our condolences to the people of France who now stand bereaved. We should note that while at this stage of any investigation, all conclusions should be regarded as provisional, the fire looks like an accident that occurred in the course of renovation work and not like an act of terror whatever any claims or speculations may be out there. And, as with any prominent disaster or misfortune, we should expect to see online scammers working to take advantage of the tragedy. Don't rise to their bait. Krebs on Security reported yesterday that IT outsourcing and consulting firm Wipro had been compromised and its networks turned against some clients. Computing this morning said the company acknowledged sustaining a successful phishing attack is investigating, and that the attacker may have been a nation-state. Ecuador has come under a large number of attacks, AFP reports, most of them apparently distributed denial-of-service attacks, since its revocation last week of asylum for WikiLeaks's Julian Assange. The attacks look like hacktivism. The U.S. District Court in Alexandria, Virginia, has released the affidavit U.S. federal prosecutors submitted to obtain the indictment, It's interesting for the large volume of chats intercepted between what appears to be Mr. Assange and then-specialist Manning. It's also interesting in that, as many observers have noted, it doesn't give much indication if the computer break-in the two are alleged to have conspired in was successful. Recorded Futures Insect Group this morning released a report on Brazil's criminal hacker community. The findings concerning this large underground community are interesting, Its targets are almost invariably domestic, other Brazilians, which may be why these particular hoods often fly below the international radar. They tend to be opportunistic, out for the quick score, and to be dynamic in their operations, with no strong allegiance to any particular platform. They use a lot of spam, and disturbingly, they're not intimidated by two-factor authentication. Researchers at Cisco Talos have noticed a shift in the underground market for malware, At best, a gray market shading to black, one of the recently hot commodities traded there is Hawkeye, 
a malware kit that offers keylogging and information theft functionality. Hawkeye has been upgraded periodically since at least 2013. It's now undergone a change in ownership, with the new proprietors being Cerebrotech, their name apparently an homage to the device developed by Professor Charles Xavier in X-Men No. 7, published in 1964. Or it could just be the Portuguese word for brain, but we're betting on the Professor X reference. Anywho, Cerebrotech is now offering an upgraded version of Hawkeye, Hawkeye Keylogger Reborn, version 9. It's described as an advanced monitoring solution, perhaps to lend a patina of legitimacy, although advanced monitoring solution would have been better. It's sold on a licensing basis in 90, 100, and 365-day increments. If you buy now, as the advertising invites you to do, this won't set you back much. $27, $37, and $47, respectively. So the 365-day license looks like the best deal. Hawkeye Keylogger Reborn comes complete with Terms of Services. <sighs> terms of Service would have been better. That primly informs the licensee that you must have permission from owner's PC to keylog their system. All our products are provided for educational purpose only. Parents may keylog their child's computer but under 14 years old. It also cautions you not to scan the product with any AV tools or to share samples online, which strikes Cisco Talos as suspicious. If you do scan or share, you'll lose your license and will be permanently banned from the store. No excuses, adds Cerebrotech, to show you they're serious. Now, if you've been listening and you're shouting, I'm convinced, where do I go to surrender? I've got to act now. Pause before reaching for that credit card or yanking on your altcoin's blockchain. This deal sounds more like something Factor 3 would come up with and not the leader of the X-Men. Cisco Talus is watching Hawkeye, like a hawk, and will no doubt keep us updated. They've already noticed that improvements are underway, and they have more reasons than we have time to discuss why Hawkeye Keylogger Reborn is bad news. See the Talos Intelligence blog for advice on how to keep Hawkeye out. And please, don't buy a license, even for educational purposes. NBC News says on the basis of leaked documents that Facebook's public assertions of commitment to privacy have long been at best an afterthought to the social network's monetization of personal data, at worst, entirely disingenuous. The documents come, NBC News says, from the period of 2011 through 2015. The company allegedly explored different ways of monetizing the data, including direct payment and advertising, but eventually settled on a sort of system of favors in which data were given to various corporate friends. Facebook denies wrongdoing and hasn't been charged with any crime in the matter, NBC News notes. The folks at Kenna Security have been working with the Scientia Institute on a series of reports titled Prioritization to Prediction. Volume 3 focuses on winning the remediation race. Ed Bellis is Chief Technology Officer at Kenna Security. We looked at something called remediation rates or remediation velocity, where we looked at the survival rates of vulnerabilities and different types of vulnerabilities where we either divided it up by common vulnerability scoring system scores or we divided them up by do these uh, vulnerabilities have exploits in the wild? And then we looked at things like the actual metadata about the customers themselves. What industries were they in? How big were they? Etc. We found out a lot of interesting things, but actually one of the things that was probably a little bit of a surprise to me 
where we looked at the ratio of open to closed vulnerabilities on a monthly basis. And we looked hmm. at everybody and top performers. And there's a few things there that really kind of stood out to me. One of the biggest surprises that I saw was whether or not you're an SMB with just a couple of hundred assets or you're a Fortune 10 enterprise with tens of millions or, or more of assets, the number of vulnerabilities on a ratio basis that you remediate is roughly about the same. Everybody out there, regardless of size and amount of resources that they have, along with the number of assets that they have, uh, is roughly remediating on average about one in 10 vulnerabilities. There were a few standouts and top performers, which were considerably better but almost everybody across the board, regardless of size and complexity, was fixing about one in 10 vulnerabilities, which really kind of surprised me. What to me, what was the surprising factor is that it was so incredibly consistent across the board, regardless of size of company, right? So oh. when you looked at the speed or the velocity of that remediation, uh, the smaller companies definitely remediated faster than the larger ones. So that complexity was certainly trumping capacity when it came to velocity of your remediation. And, and you suppose that's just the, the simple fact that it's, you know, it takes longer to, to steer a battleship than a sailboat? I think that, that a lot goes into that, right? And, and not only is that battleship big, but I would say even more so that battleship is complex, right? And there's a lot of mm -hmm. different things going on and a lot of different things that you have to navigate in an org of that size. Kind of the next step for us is to take a look at all of the attributes about those top performers, kind of pluck those out and maybe some of the low performers and then the average and say, what, what makes them different? What, why are these folks remediating one in four versus everybody else at one in 10? Or why are these folks so quick and so fast at remediating the high risk vulnerabilities where these folks are a little slower, but maybe a little bit more persistent and, and they get to more. So what we're doing now is actually starting to look at the attributes of those companies, of those programs, what they have in place, what it is exactly that they're doing. And we're hoping to answer a lot of those questions in the next volume. That's Ed Bellis from Kenna Security. The report is titled Prioritization to Prediction. This is volume three, winning the remediation race. You can find it on their website. The European Union has finally passed its controversial copyright reform law. 19 of 28 member countries voted to ratify the European Parliament's action. European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker said yesterday, quote, With today's agreement, we are making copyright rules fit for the digital age, end quote, which is one way of looking at it. Critics see the law's Articles 11 and 13 as particularly objectionable, Article 11 establishes a link tax to pay owners of copyrighted content, and Article 13 makes platforms legally liable for any infringing material their users post. More European governments, including those of Belgium and Germany, have declined to ban Huawei, although many also acknowledge security risks associated with the company's hardware. This may not represent as much of a victory for Huawei and a defeat for some of the Five Eyes' concerns about supply chain integrity as it first appears. The U.S. intends to continue to nudge its allies toward restricting Huawei gear at upcoming meetings in Prague. Bloomberg observes that close regulation of 5G networks in Europe seems very likely, and that such regulation will probably significantly pick away at Huawei and its market share, a little like being nibbled to death by ducks. So, what are these algorithms people keep talking about? Here's a quick and dirty definition. 
An algorithm is a defined, finite set of steps for performing a calculation. It moves through well-defined stages and produces a final result. We mention this because the algorithms used in artificial intelligence have been the subject of a lot of picture-thinking. We're encouraged to think of them as being something like Commander Data from the old Star Trek show, you know, smart, but maybe just a touch emotionally naive. Well, here's a picture to counter that one. Don't think about Commander Data. Think about Mickey Mouse's broom and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the one that just kept carrying pails of water. Maybe that's a little unfair to the artificial persons, but we offer it as a kind of counterweight to the pervasive Roddenberryana. Well, the algorithm was in the news again. YouTube yesterday flagged live-streamed video of the tragic Notre Dame fire as possible misinformation and ran an explanatory box below such streams that offered to fill in viewers to the truth by displaying images and information about the 9-11 attacks. According to TechCrunch, YouTube says the algorithm did it and that they're sorry that the algorithm made the wrong call. The algorithm was unavailable for comment. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the VP of Research at Terbium Labs. Emily, it's great to have you back. Uh, you all recently published a report. This is called Fraud Guides 101, Dark Web Lessons on How to Defraud Companies and Exploit Data. Uh, take us through uh, what's going on with this report. 
So we recently obtained just over 30,000 of these fraud guides from dark web markets. So when I say fraud guide, what I mean is instruction manuals or guidebooks on how to commit different types of fraud or how to pursue different types of cybercrime. Hmm. We pulled in all of these guides and we did some analysis on them to answer a few different questions. You know, what sort of data is most valuable? What data has the most intrinsic value? How do financial data types compare to personal information data types? What can we learn from these? How do these all break out? Hmm. Uh, and it's it's been a real labor of love, but I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see it come out. So this is something where I would go and buy these guides? If you were an enterprising criminal, you could go and buy these guides. They are available widely available on dark web markets. And, you know, you can search by uh, whatever sort of scheme you're looking for. If you're looking for a guide on how to open a fraudulent bank account or how to commit tax fraud, how to do account takeover, how to bypass certain controls, for example, if you want to figure out how to access an email account that has 2FA set up, Mm -hmm. how do you get around that? Mm. All right, well, take us through and what are some of the key findings here? So one of the most interesting findings I was looking, uh, I mentioned the the question about what's the most intrinsically valuable data type? Hmm. What is the data type that stands alone in these reports or in these guides rather? If you're looking at these guides, uh, you know, what data type can, you can get through an entire guide with just a mention of one data type. Hmm. I thought it would be payment cards. Going into it, I absolutely assumed it would be payment cards because They're the easiest thing to use. You don't have to have any other information. You can just go and make a transaction. Uh, And so I thought that would be what stood alone. Mm. Turns out it was email addresses. Hmm. How come? Go go on. Email addresses are widely available in the market, both for sale as part of credentials or contact lists. They're also leaked very widely. Uh, And so it could speak to the volume of data in the ecosystem, right? You want to write guides about what's most widely available, about your most plentiful resource. The other thing is that email addresses are tied back to every form of a digital identity or or certainly most forms of a digital identity. Mm -hmm. If you are signing up for an account, if you are placing an order, if you are following news or information, all of these things tie back to an email address and then eventually tie back to a real person. And so I think it speaks to the, the ubiquity of the email address in the digital age. And email addresses are tied to financial accounts. They're also tied to a variety of other accounts, which means fraudsters can use them to cash out, but also to run longer schemes. I guess in some ways it's that versatility of an email account that that provides some of the value as well. It is versatile. It's, you know, it's also something that links not only an account to an individual, but can also be present across a wide variety of accounts. Because for most people, it's not as though you're using a different email address for your bank account and your retail account and your insurance accounts and your whatever else accounts. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a centralized email address, personal and professional, for a reason, which means that, you know, fraudsters work with what's in front of them. And if an email address is in front of them, they're probably going to use it for you know, whatever it's tied to, if it's leaked or sold as part of a financial account, but there's nothing stopping them from saying, okay, where else is this email address used? Are they using the same password or a similar password? How far can I run with this one person? Yeah. All right. Well, there's much more in the report. It's called Fraud Guides 101, Dark Web Lessons on How to Defraud Companies and Exploit Data. Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us.
And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.